0: Good morning, it's not every day that I get to preach on a mountaintop, since, uh, since I've always found that uh, mountains are a spiritually inspiring experience to me, perhaps this will be a better sermon than you're used to, we can only hope, right? Well happy Father's Day to all the dads out there, don't you love these pictures of the dads here at TCF? if there's ever a day that we dads can say what I'm about to say without sounding like total narcissists it's Father's Day because what I want to say this morning is that it's all about me (laughs) it's all about me after all I'm a father and it is Father's Day so at least in my house it's all about me today and if you're the dad in your house then it's all about you if we were to fully buy into the things that our culture thinks I might really believe this And I might believe it on days beyond Father's Day. We think of Father's Day as a day to remember our fathers, to honor our fathers. And that's a good thing. Of course, nothing wrong with that. Did you know the original Father's Day was first proclaimed by President Calvin Coolidge in 1924? And it had more to do with turning men into good fathers than it had to do with enabling dads to say on this day, hey, it's all about me. With President Coolidge's declaration of that first Father's Day, it was actually 91 years ago, he said the purpose of the holiday was to, and I quote, establish more intimate relations between fathers and their children and to impress upon fathers the full measure of obligations. Isn't that good? Isn't it also very interesting how seemingly prophetic Calvin Coolidge seemed to be, at least in recognizing how fathers need to fulfill the full measure of their obligations as fathers. We've learned the terrible effect of fatherlessness on children and even on our culture, whether children are without dads because of divorce or out of wedlock births or abandonment. And now, knowing what we know about the social costs of this, you'd have to be a total idiot to deny that fathers who do not fulfill the full measure of their obligation of fathers, both financially and emotionally and even spiritually are putting their children and even our society at risk. And a major reason for that is that there's too many dads, not just too many dads, there's too many parents, so moms aren't off the hook here either. And actually, to let nobody in the auditorium off the hook, there's too many people, the rest of us here maybe who aren't parents, I want to keep you from checking out and thinking this sermon's not about you. Too many of all of us, think that somehow parenthood, or life, or relationships for that matter, are all about them, just like almost everything else is all about them. Of course, this is just reflective of what we read in 2 Timothy in this passage from chapter 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. That's pretty easy to understand. Verse 2 relates to this idea that I expressed a moment ago. People will be lovers of self. It's all about me. The words translated lovers of self here are really pretty clear. They mean self-centered. And at the extreme, it means narcissistic. This is our culture. This is what we see in the world. This is why you can find all different kinds of sentiments everywhere expressed not even really for humor's sake, but with all seriousness, like this one I found. Let me read this. The hierarchy of selfishness is simple. You can't put everyone else first and call that love. Implementing this is far from easy, however. It requires courage, especially from women who risk incurring the judgment of others for daring to insist, I come first. So, according to this sentiment, being selfish is courageous. It's even heroic according to this segment of our culture. And you might think, well, you know, Bill, doesn't the Bible command us to love ourselves? After all, doesn't Matthew 19, quoting Leviticus 19, say to love your neighbor as yourself? And, of course, it does say to love your neighbor as yourself. But the emphasis there is on loving your neighbor. The emphasis is on loving yourself. The idea here is that you love yourself already. To love yourself is an assumption in this passage of Scripture. The idea is you love your neighbor at least as much as you already love yourself because you do love yourself. That's a given. So this is not a command to love yourself. It's understood that you already do. When we read about love in Scripture though, we read that love is what? It's not self-seeking. It's a different kind of love. It's the agape love that we read about in scripture. So when it comes to fatherhood, when it comes to parenthood, or really when it comes to any kind of love relationship in our lives, our culture says it's okay for people to say it's all about me. It's about my fulfillment. It's about my satisfaction. It's about my happiness, about my priorities. After all, you deserve it, don't you? Isn't that what some commercials tell you? You deserve it. We see more examples from today's culture. How about this one? It's not selfish to love yourself, take care of yourself, and to make your happiness a priority, it's necessary. Okay? Let's think about that one for a a moment. The idea that it's not selfish to make your happiness a priority is presented here as wisdom. You see where it comes from? It comes from wisdom quotes. Okay? Now let's be clear here. We must take care of ourselves. Okay? If we don't take care of our health and well-being, then we're of no use to anybody. There's a reason that God made the Sabbath. It's a principle that we ignore to our own peril. We do have to have some time for ourselves, for rest, for renewal. But to say that our own happiness is a priority is a whole different thing. It's the polar opposite of what Scripture tells us. We read about Jesus in Philippians 2, for example. And listen to this passage that I'm going to read here from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. And tell me if this sounds as if Jesus is making his own happiness a priority. Okay, think about that as I read this. Have this mind among yourselves. In other words, Paul is saying, think like this, okay, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, does that sound like Jesus was putting his own personal happiness first? We also see a long list of one another-isms in the New Testament, making very practicals the way that we are to love one another. And I'm hard-pressed to see how making my own happiness a priority fits in well with any of these one another-isms. For example, there's bear with one another, there's wash one another's feet, wait for one another, care for one another, serve one another, forgive one another, submit to one another, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Does that sound like making your own happiness your priority? Or how about this, do good to one another, show hospitality, toward one another, be humble toward one another. We also see the words of Jesus in John chapter 13 where he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The key phrase here is, just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. And how did Jesus love us? If we're to love just as Jesus loved, how did Jesus love us? He gave himself. He sacrificed himself willingly, completely, not his own priorities. That, again, does not sound like making your own happiness a priority. So the Word of God tells us something completely different than our culture tells us. Imagine that. It's not about me. Even if I might think so on Father's Day, my happiness should not be my priority because it's not God's priority. Now, that's a tough thing, and you're not going to hear that in a lot of churches. My happiness should not be my priority because it's not God's priority. Ultimate joy will be mine in eternity. Okay? And I may have joy and happiness in this life too by God's grace. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not all about me it's about God's glory so how does this apply to Father's Day well I'm about to tell you it's because fatherhood itself parenthood is not about making me happy but it is about making me holy let me say that again it's not about making me happy but it's about helping me grow into holiness in Christ this is what I want to spend some time pondering this morning now I think we can say this about many things in life at least if we're followers of Christ we can that is we can say that this circumstance or this relationship in my life is not about making me happy but it is about making me holy we might be able to say it about other things too we might be able to say it about our jobs we might be able to say it about our school experience we can say it about other relationships we can definitely say it about marriage and not just parenthood or fatherhood. In fact, there's a book called Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. We actually did a Sunday night seminar on that book just a few years ago. That's the theme of this book. Actually, the question is on the cover of this book, and it says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Now, I realize how unromantic that may sound at first blush, but think about it this way. A marriage that develops holiness in us is definitely more romantic than a marriage that falls apart because one or both partners decide they're not happy. But as I read this book, I realized how many of the things that the author says about marriage are also true about parenthood. And in fact, after reading Sacred Marriage several years ago, I found that Gary Thomas had in fact written another book with the same theme applied to parenthood instead of marriage and it's called sacred parenting I'm going to quote from both books this morning but I'm going to apply those ideas from marriage to parenting because they really are almost interchangeable in sacred marriage for example he quotes Francis de Sales who said the state of marriage is one that requires more virtue and constancy than any other it is a perpetual exercise of mortification. So for the language challenged among you, mortification in this context is very simple. It means dying to self. That's what it means. It means dying to self. And I think parenting, or today because it is Father's Day, fatherhood is also a perpetual exercise in mortification. It's a perpetual exercise in dying to self. Let me give you another quote from that book but this time I'm going to substitute the word parenting or parenthood for marriage. To spiritually benefit from parenthood, we have to be honest. We have to look at our disappointments, own up to our ugly attitudes, and confront our selfishness. We also have to rid ourselves of the notion that the difficulties in our parenting can be overcome if we simply pray harder or learn a few principles. He goes on to write, What if God didn't design parenting to be easier? What if God had an end in mind that went beyond our happiness, our comfort, and our desire to be infatuated and happy as if the world were a perfect place? What if God designed parenthood to make us holy more than to make us happy? Indeed, what if? What if that's part of God's design in parenthood? What if that's God's design for our experienced dads as fathers to make us more into the image and likeness of Christ? Doesn't that help us work through those inevitable challenges if we realize this going in? Yes, of course, in that happiness and joy may be a byproduct, but not necessarily and certainly not always. Yes, of course, in that we have a clear responsibility to be the physical and spiritual nurturers for our children. But we see all kinds of books designed to make us better fathers, which is a good thing, but also to make parenting easier. But what if it's not supposed to be easy? After all, any real growth requires resistance of some kind. Think about it. You have to stress your muscles to strengthen them, don't you? So our purpose as fathers is to nurture our children. It's to teach them, to help them grow, to learn to be responsible citizens in our culture and in the kingdom of God. But God's purpose in having us participate in this work for Him is twofold. First of all that we would be among God's agents in accomplishing these very important things in our children. But secondly that he would use the experience of parenting to make us into his image. And it's all about me perspective on parenting might mean that everything's always perfect, the kids are always perfect. There are never any challenges as long as you do this, this, and this. You do it this way and this way and this way, and everything's going to go just fine. Practice this formula, and things will work out great. Hakuna matata, no worries, right? Your kids will never do drugs. They'll never marry the wrong person. They'll never stray from the Lord or get, in, or get into trouble. They'll marry rich doctors and lawyers and always make you happy. Now, some of us parents do experience some of these things to some degree. Many don't. At least we don't experience all of them. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are clearly principles in parenting that are better than others, okay? For example, discipline is better than no discipline, right? Scripture provides very important analogies between our parenting relationships with our children and God's parenting relationship with us. How about this one, a very familiar one from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 5. And you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, what parent here can say that they understood this set passage in the very same way after they had to lovingly discipline their own children? But real life has a way of upsetting the apple cart. Again, and it's all about me view of parenthood has no room for error did you think about that it shatters when the expectations are totally unrealistic it explodes when there's disappointment but a view of parenting that requires a mature truly agape love will stretch us it's the only way we truly grow our children aren't the only ones who are transformed by our parenting the real transforming work in parenting works in us as fathers, as parents. And it's in the 24-7-365 grind of commitment, of commitment. Fatherhood, parenthood calls us to an entirely new and an entirely selfless life. Quoting Gary Thomas again, any situation that calls me to confront my selfishness has enormous spiritual value. And I slowly began to understand that the real purpose of parenthood may not be happiness as much as it is holiness. Not that God has anything against happiness or that happiness and holiness are by nature mutually exclusive. But looking at parenthood through the lens of holiness began to put it into an entirely new perspective for me. And I have to say when I read that and I began to think about it this way, it put it into an entirely new perspective for me as well. So let's be clear here. We can, in fact, derive a sense of satisfaction from fatherhood. We can and do sometimes have a sense of happiness from fatherhood but I think it's important for us to remember that this is primarily a byproduct, a blessing from God, but a byproduct and it's not God's primary purpose for us. Unfortunately our society has really lost this idea completely. We see thinking like this in our uh, popular media, in movies, in television, etc. We see For example, the thinking that people with wealth, education, and independence often have few, if any, children. Did you notice that's true? We see that the good life for these people isn't defined by community. It's not defined by family, but by individualism, by the pursuit of unrestricted time to do whatever they want to do to bring them happiness and satisfaction and the freedom of self-fulfillment. We also see that all of these things cost money, all of these things that our culture wants to do, to do their own thing, cost money. And we also see that none of these things translate into changing diapers or cleaning up, spit up on your shoulder or uh, food the kids have thrown on the floor or working an extra job to pay for your kids' tuition or driving a used minivan or sacrificing your own wants or desires to help provide for others. The reality is it no longer makes economic sense to have kids. Having kids is a poor financial decision, folks. Let me tell you that. The financial liability of raising a child to adulthood ranges from 700000 to $1.5 million per child, depending on whose estimates you believe. Now, if we buy into these purely financial and selfish reasons, we really should quit having kids altogether. But that's not what it's about, is it? In fact, that's what many people are deciding to do. Having kids really kind of cramps their style. It gets in the way of their personal goals and their financial goals. There's a book called The Childless Revolution. The book opens by reprinting responses that were um, received by Ann Landers. You remember the advice columnist Ann Landers? Almost 40 years ago. So this is not a new thing in our culture. It's just a growing uh, thing. And she asked her readers if they could do it again, would they have children? And guess what percentage said no? Anybody want to hazard a guess? This is hardly a scientific survey, but the number is shocking to me nonetheless. Seventy percent of the people in this little survey said no, they'd not have children again. A couple comments from this. One woman wrote, I speak from experience as a mother of five. Was it worth it? No. Not one of our children has given us any pleasure. God knows we did our best, but we were failures of parents, and they are failures as people. Another one complained, I was an attractive, fulfilled career woman before these kids. Now I'm an overly exhausted wreck who misses her job and sees very little of her husband. He's got a quote-unquote friend, I'm sure, and I don't blame him. Our children took all the romance out of our marriage, signed too late for tears. Now, it's interesting that in this book, instead of pointing out how incredibly callous and selfish these reasons sound, Instead of noting that perhaps these attitudes might explain why your kids turned out the way they did, why this generation of children has so much trouble maintaining personal relationships. Here's what the author of this book wrote. Maybe parenting is not all it's cracked up to be, and some brave souls wanted to spare others from what no one had spared them, namely parenting. Now, as followers of Christ, we should instinctively recognize that there is something truly perverse about this worldview. When all we ask is, what's in it for me, and how can I be happy, then something, folks, is seriously wrong. There are other cultural indicators of the way that parents often make parenting all about their needs and desires. Did you know, for example, that Down syndrome can be detected in the first trimester when women are pregnant. Women at high risk for having a child with Down syndrome first undergo a blood test at about 16 weeks, and then if the test is positive, they have an amniocentesis at about 20 weeks. Now, if the results confirm the initial findings, they nearly always have an abortion. One of the authors of the study which found a way to detect Down syndrome in the first trimester said that in light of this study, we should offer screening to all women in their first trimester do you understand the not so hidden agenda here a test that enables doctors to identify birth defects before children are born will only be used for one purpose to eliminate those children in fact more than ninety percent nine out of ten folks of women who have this positive test for a Down syndrome child are aborted, 90%. Now, relating this to the idea of what we've been talking about this morning, what's the risk here for these women, for these parents, for the fathers and the mothers? Why are parents having all these abortions? Well, at least in the case of those abortions that are for Down syndrome, and again, 9 out of 10, it's clear that it's not to ease the suffering of the children, of these defective, quote-unquote, children. They don't suffer. At least they don't suffer from Down syndrome. Now there's a writer named Roberto Rivera. He has a son with autism. And he wrote that Down syndrome child, children are often aware that they're different, but any pain they may feel in this respect is caused by other people's reactions to the differences. From my own experience with my autistic son, I can tell you that David's autism troubles me a great deal more than does him. And this writer continues, the inescapable conclusion is that the suffering we're seeking to avoid is that of the adults. How else do you explain the phenomenon of doctors being sued for the wrongful birth of a child with disabilities? Children with Down syndrome or other disabilities represent an unacceptable impingement on their potential parents' freedom. They have to work harder at being good parents and they don't even get to show off with my child is an honor roll student at bumper sticker if that sounds harsh well it is it's also true we forget whose life we're talking about we forget that in this sense folks it's not about me it's not about me my individual worth and the worth of my children is determined by who we are we are people created in the image of God our worth is not in what we accomplish We cave in to society's worldview by thinking that our children are somehow accomplishments. My primary role in life is not to fulfill my ambitions, and that holds especially true when I consider myself as a father. My role in life is to accomplish what God created me for. Our culture tells us that children are a burden. Our culture tells us that children rob us of our individual financial resources and our potential. But what does Psalm 127, verse 3 say about children? Children are a gift from the Lord. We have to define what gift means, though, don't we? Because sometimes it's not the kind of gift that we're looking for. The fruit of the womb is a reward. So which voices will we listen to, folks? Will we conform to our culture, or will we believe the Word of God? Children teach us, folks. They teach us. That's one of the gifts that they are to us because they teach us from being a father i've learned more about sacrifice i've also learned how to listen better our children are incredibly valuable to our prayer life they drive us to our knees sometimes don't they parents they give us a glimpse of what god experiences when we don't obey they help us learn to trust in and to rely on god now our children don't often hardly ever really teach us by lecture at least they better not be lecturing me only sometimes do they actually teach by example No, we learn and grow from our relationships with our children and the very process of raising them to adulthood and even into adulthood when we are no longer responsible for them Gary Thomas writes it's not just that we can learn from observing children but that the process of parenting is one of the most spiritually formative journeys a man and woman can ever undertake. We will be forever changed, forever altered. Spiritually speaking, we need to raise children every bit as much as they need to raise us. I can say a hearty amen to that. Children can teach us how to love unconditionally. They can help us understand God's unconditional love for us. Have your children ever done anything to disappoint you? Have your children ever done Anything to grieve you, made choices that grieved you? Have you ever done anything to disappoint God? Have you ever made any choices that you realize grieved God because of your choice? Now, as a father, I believe that today I have a better understanding how I disappoint him, how I grieve him. Perhaps I understand more of God's love for me now than I did more than 28 years ago before I became a parent back in 1987, before I had any children at all. Children can help us understand what sacrifice and devotion mean in a way that nothing else can. True devotion motivates us to stay the course, to learn patience, and to sacrifice our own comfort for the good of others. Things we learn from our experience with our children, they mold us and shape us into the image and likeness of our Savior who did more than just sacrifice his comfort for the good of each of us. He gave his very life. Our love for our children gives us just a minuscule taste, just a glimpse, really, of God's great love for us. It continues into the toddler years and to the grade school years, and especially into the teen years when we learn what self-will is all about from the other side of the coin. Not our own self-will, but from seeing what we see. I love this cartoon of the teenage mouse. He says, I can totally get away with this as he sniffs at the cheese and the mouse trap that's likely going to kill him. How many of you have had teenagers and have thought about that kind of thing? Doesn't it make you think of God's loving care for us? Doesn't it make you think of his unconditional love for us? Doesn't it illustrate God's patience with us when we have to witness our own children's Constant testing of boundaries. They're constant acts of how far can they push things. From when they're little, I have this visual image of Lisa with this Christmas tree. And it's a little ceramic Christmas tree, and she's reaching over for the bulb to pull it out, you know. No, no, no. And she's looking back, like, okay, here I am. Are you going to stop me? Are you going to stop me? That's what I think of. And, you know, we do the same thing, folks. We do the same things. We push boundaries constantly experimenting how far our will can take us. And that's not only when they're little, of course. The boundaries have a lot more to do when they're little with how much ice cream they can have, rather than the inevitably more serious things that they will test as they grow into their teen and their young adult years. I can't tell you how many times I've watched my own or other people's children test these things and wrestle with what they're going to obey, their own will or the truth of what they've been taught. I've thought, so that's what God experiences. When I do the very same kind of thing, in different contexts, of course, but even as an adult, even as a devoted follower of Him, who ought to know better, I hope I've learned from these things. I hope I've learned that God can shape me into a more wholehearted follower of Him, a more useful servant, of the King of Kings because of these experiences that I've had as a father. And we always hope our children learn from these things too. That's one of those things that we pray about a lot, isn't it, parents? Just as it's part of God's design for us to learn even as adults. Our children help us distinguish what's important from what's not important. They help us see the clear difference between what's eternal and what's transient and passing. This is just a sampling, folks, of how being a father is not about me because it's not about making me happy, but it is about making me holy. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful, Father, that you love us as a father. We're grateful for the discipline that you bring into our lives as we read in Hebrews. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, that you love us enough to correct us and to make things challenging for us, Father, so we can grow into our parent role, Father. But we thank you that this applies to all of us because none of our relationships are about me. None of the life circumstances are about me. It's about your glory. So Father, help us keep that in mind, Lord, today as we celebrate our fathers and uh, in the coming days and weeks, Lord, as we continue to follow and serve you and look to you as our source of supply. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you use such things to help us to grow, help us to never be the kind of people that it's all about me, and we are just selfish, Father God. We're grateful that you root that selfishness out of us, and we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.